0: this podcast is a member of the place to be nation family visit us at place to be the only place to be in your pop culture world
1: Welcome to episode 8 of the Glenn Butler podcast, Our Spectacular, where we have a podcast. I am Glenn Butler, and with me as always is Scott Butler. Scott, what's up? The direction opposite that in which gravity acts. Exactly. Being as we are in the month of February, we thought we would do an Oscar preview here on The Spectacular, and we are doing this the only way we know how. ...which is that we have listened to the nominees for Best Original Score... ...and we don't plan on talking about any of the other categories very much.
2: I haven't seen any of the movies nominated in any of the other categories.
1: Yeah, Best Picture, you seen anything?
2: No, although I'm kind of annoyed that Star Wars didn't get nominated. We can talk about that later if you want.
1: Sure. Uh, if you, a fair listener, would like to find the albums for any of these... ...they are all on Spotify. I'm pretty sure they must all be on Amazon MP3, or iTunes, or wherever you get your music, should you be inclined. So, we are going to take a look at the nominees for Best Original Score, and we will start with the score for Sicario by Johan Johansson, someone who's broken onto the scene a little more recently than some of the other composers, but who was nominated last year for The Theory of Everything. Uh, Scott, what did you think of this score? I didn't like it at all.
2: There was a lot of, like, foreboding and tension building, but not a lot of rhythm or melody or anything really enjoyable to listen to. We should probably say, right off the bat, it's really hard to judge these. I haven't seen any of these movies other than Star Wars, so it's really hard to judge these because you're judging them as a film score. You're not judging it just as an abstract piece of music, and I haven't seen the film. So, maybe it works great in the film. Maybe it's a perfect match to the film. Maybe it is the perfect musical composition to aid the filmmaker in whatever effect the filmmaker was hoping to achieve. But as a piece of music to listen to, it was nothing.
1: Yeah, this is this is one of the uh, discs that I found, as we say here on the podcast, dreadfully dull. That's going to be your new uh, catchphrase this week, huh? It's not my new catchphrase. This week it is? <laughs> Uh, th- this is a uh, drug war movie, and so much of the music is just kind of oppressive, pounding, and yet still ambient. Yes, oppressive
2: is another way of putting it. It's it's a lot of pounding, a lot of crashing, a lot of tension building, and no discernible melody for a lot of it. In fact, the one track that sort of offers a reprieve from that is toward the end of the disc is a track called Alejandro's Song, which... I have two notes about that track. 35 seconds into it, I noted, well, at least Alejandro's song isn't as dreary and heavy as the rest of the CD. And then two and a half minutes later, I noted, wow, Alejandro's song is really discordant and annoying.
1: Yeah, my, my note on that was basically that the uh, the vocals in it, like, add a little bit of humanity to some music that had really been oppressively inhuman before, but ultimately it succumbs to the, like, bleak, Droning mess that was the rest of the CD. And I mean, I get having it in a movie and I get listening to that for a track or two, you know, to provide variety, but as an album to listen to, it's not anything I will ever listen to again.
2: I actually listened to this disc twice because I had to put together music bumpers for this podcast. And so I had to listen to it again, trying to find a piece of music we could use for the intro. And I made four additional notes while listening to it the second time. Note one, I wrote second listen just as bad. Note two, there was a track called Drywall, and I noted Drywall, I prefer the building material. Note three, God, this disc sucks. (laughs) Note four, maybe my tolerance is low since I just watched Star Trek 1 yesterday. That's unfair.
1: But yeah, there's just a lot of tension building, and then a lot of tense material, and then the tension builds some more. Sometimes with the Horn of Doom from uh, Inception, which is the worst thing to take from Inception.
2: I mean, it's it works okay in Inception, but when that's the only thing you take from Inception and just plaster it all over the place...
1: Yeah, that that's that's something... I mean, Inception is almost six years old already, so maybe its big effect on the art of film scoring is waning. But that score had so much more to it. And it used those sorts of, like, big crashing brass notes to disrupt things and then use them as rhythm sometimes. Here, it's, it's just empty. Yeah, th- those big crashing brass notes, they're a relatively
2: minor part of a score. I mean, they're prominent, They're noticeable, but on their own, they're nothing. It's what you pair it with that counts. If you pair it with a score like Inception, or you pair it with a score like Pacific Rim, or you pair it with banging, tension-building emptiness, like
1: Sicario. Yeah, Pacific Rim is another one where it was used almost like a rhythm maker.
2: Yeah. I really liked the theme to that movie. I remember you, the first time you listened to it, you were like, wow, I never imagined I'd hear the tone from Inception paired with electric guitar. Yes, that was a <laughs> bit of a shock. But it worked! Because there was an actual notes, there was a tune, there was a melody, there was all these ingredients that put together and make decent music. It wasn't just banging and emptiness.
1: Yeah, here it's just, like, grim and gritty droning. There's one track, uh, Melancholia, with some guitar work that is different, certainly, but it is just so stereotypical. And it goes on and on and on.
2: The one word I used in my notes that I think really describes the score best is I just said it was really aimless. Like, nothing built to anything in particular, just sort of built for the sake of building and there was no real payoff musically. You know, like, maybe the music ends and then there was a big dramatic scene with no score under it and it worked in the movie, but listening to the music, there was no payoff musically. It just sort of tension built and then the track ended. Foreboding built and then the track ended. And then the next track was the same thing. It was just sort of aimless. Nothing led to anything, nothing built to anything. There was no payoff to anything. It was just nothing. Yeah, basically. The most interesting thing in this movie is I looked up because I looked up some of these composers' IMDb credits to see what else they had done. And I actually listened to The Theory of Everything because I had never listened to anything by Johan Johansson before. So I listened to Theory of Everything, and Theory of Everything was pretty good. I mean, I don't think it was would be one of my favorites, but it was decent. It was a solid score. It was perfectly fine. It wasn't anywhere near as bad as Sicario, but... The most interesting thing about Sicario is I noticed on the IMDb page that Victor Garber is in Sicario. Victor Garber, star of Titanic and CBS soap operas, I believe. He's in Sicario, and he plays Dave Jennings. I did not realize this was a biopic about former Giants punter Dave Jennings. Things got pretty dark for him, I guess. It's about time he got a proper biopic. God, you think a lot of this pounding droning is, is for, you know, taking hits? Well, maybe it's from the montage where he just, like, punts 800 times in a row, trying to make sure he gets his technique right. Punt, 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 punt.
1: God, I'm trying to think of a track here that would go with a training montage and, you know... Like I said, if all
2: all you see is a football hitting a foot once every 1.2 seconds for three minutes, that would fit several of these tracks.
1: Imagine, if you will, a foot hitting a ball forever. (laughs) With that, I think we will move on to our next score. The Hateful Eight, by Ennio Morricone. Morricone, who is one of the greats in 20th century film scoring, and is still going strong. He's about 87 years old, I believe. He has scored a ton of movies in his time. A ton of Italian movies, but also whatever spaghetti western you want to think of was probably him. Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, for a few dollars more, just a ton of those uh, Sergio Leone movies. He has 528
2: composer credits on his IMDb page.
1: Yes, he has been going strong for a long time. And this is his sixth Oscar nomination that he's gotten in all that time. That's kind of amazing. Well, there have been times when he's tried to do movies in the U.S. a little more, but none of them went particularly well, and so he just went back to doing a million movies in um, Italy. His first Oscar nomination, though, was for a movie called Days of Heaven. I believe it was a Terrence Malick film, and his score for that is incredible. That is definitely one that I would look up. Uh, He also got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Oscars some years ago. And I don't know how many people get the Lifetime Achievement Award and then get nominated for an award after that. Uh, That was the presentation where he gave his speech in Italian, of course, and Clint Eastwood stood there and interpreted for him.
2: Yes, I remember that.
1: Uh, Now, this is, of course, the score for Quentin Tarantino's new movie. Uh, Quentin Tarantino has always been a filmmaker who needle drops a bunch of film cues and songs into all of his movies. And for a long time, a lot of them have been from old Morricone scores. ...because he's a fan of those spaghetti westerns and that whole milieu. And so, that started to happen more and more. I believe he commissioned, like, one track or one theme from Morricone for *Inglorious Bastards*, if I recall correctly. And now, for Hateful Eight, he's gone to the trouble of commissioning a full score from him. Although, Tarantino's style of putting music in his movies kinda meshed with Morricone's style of scoring movies... ...where he wrote the music without watching the movie. He read the script and wrote a bunch of music and recorded it and gave it to Tarantino and let him put it in the movie as he saw fit.
2: Uh Uh-huh. So none of the score is actually designed to support a
1: particular scene. It's not designed to conform to edits. It's designed to be put in and edited to fit, you know, wherever it's going to go in the movie. Interesting. This is... Much different from Sicario, which we were discussing a minute ago, in that it has uh, identifiable melodies. Yes, it does. It's It's a huge improvement. There's a theme introduced in the first track, which is pretty engaging. Well, both
2: themes are sort of introduced in the first track, or at least two themes are introduced in the first track. There's two themes that jump out at me from this score, and they're both in the first track. The one theme is in sort of the beginning of the first track, And that theme sounds very much like level music from Doom. In fact, in my notes, I call it the imp-hunting theme.
1: It does kind of sound like that. It's kind of repetitive in the way that video game music is. And it's full of dread. It's got this bassoon melody that kind of wraps around on itself.
2: Yes. I can easily picture myself in a catacombs level, sneaking around corners trying not to be caught by the shotgun guy while that music is playing. So that's the impunting theme, and the other theme is toward the end of the first track, it comes in, and that theme sounds a lot like the old song Live and Learn.
1: See, I don't know this song, I believe, and I'm pretty sure Morricone wouldn't either.
2: It highly doubtful that Morricone has heard it, but it is remarkably close to the theme from that song. I know that song because I learned how to play the melody of that song on a Casio keyboard in junior high school music class. Well. So there's probably more themes that I haven't noticed because I've only listened to this score like twice, but those are the two that jump out at me, and they're both right there in the first track.
1: Yeah, in, in that first track, the... um bassoon melody, I was thinking wasn't developing quickly enough to really keep my attention. Like, it seemed to be repeating with the same instrumentation and then it transitioned to something that sounded a lot like a muted trombone. Like, it sounded like suddenly this is like a jazzy mid-20th century detective story. Yeah, that impunting
2: theme does go through several orchestrations where it sort of turns into, like, a bluesy version. And then there's another point where it's played on high strings. It's, it's like a horror movie version. Yeah, for sure. The one main comment I had about this, apart from the score itself even, is that this is one of the worst designed CDs in terms of the soundtrack that I've ever heard. A lot of times when people put together score discs they make two primary mistakes one is mixing in random songs with the score as if like the score isn't enough to carry its own discs you have to add in songs to like keep people's interest which you know it's fine to have the musical score of a film and it's fine to have songs that are used in a film but there's no need to mix them into each other if i want to listen to songs I want to listen to songs, and I want to listen to the score, I want to listen to the score. I don't want to listen to one and then the other and randomly shuffled. It's just not a good listening experience. The other mistake soundtrack producers sometimes make is they add in, like, sound clips from the film onto a score CD. As if, again, as if the score itself is not enough to keep the listener's interest. So they add in, like, clips of the film either in between score tracks or over top of score tracks. So you can't even listen to the score on its own without these sound clips of the film on top of it. This Hateful Eight CD makes both mistakes. Not only are there songs stuck in in the middle of the score, there's also clips of the movie stuck in in the middle of the score. And by the way, I don't know when I've ever heard the N-word more than listening to clips of this Tarantino movie.
1: Yeah, that's because you haven't seen a lot of
2: Tarantino movies. (laughs) Not as more recent ones. But yeah, if there was... This is the Academy Award category for Best Score. If there was an Academy Award category for Best Score CD Composition, Hateful Eight would win the Golden Raspberry.
1: I think it's worth noting that we're talking about the commercial album here because that's what we got. But the four-year consideration promo CD that goes out to Academy voters doesn't have the songs, doesn't have the dialogue clips. It might have more score, I'm not sure. Some of them do, some of them don't. uh, When they're preparing these things for Academy voters. But we're talking about the commercial album here and all of those interruptions are indeed terrible. The practice of putting dialogue tracks on these albums is somewhat of a vestige of the 60s and 70s when a soundtrack album, in the somewhat rare event that one was made, uh, a little more rare than it is now that you can just slap something on CD or slap it up on iTunes, when an, an album was made, it was considered more of a memento of the movie, especially before home video. And so, a lot of albums had dialogue on them to kind of serve as, like, a story and music experience. And I think that's probably what they're going for, because Tarantino is, again, you know, an old-school kind of guy. He's the kind of filmmaker who aggressively fetishizes his childhood. And so, I think that's probably what they're going for, but for me, trying to listen to the thing, it's terrible.
2: Yeah, it really did impact my experience listening to it. It actively made me enjoy this a lot less than I otherwise would have because of all these interruptions. Especially since I haven't even seen the movie. You know, maybe if I had seen the movie and enjoyed the movie, then like, oh, this scene from the movie, ha ha ha. But since I haven't even seen the movie, it was just, you know, oh, here's a track of Kurt Russell saying the N-word a whole bunch. Yippee. You know, it had no appeal to me. So, almost immediately after I finished listening to this, I went and listened to it again, without any of that extra crap in
1: it. And it was a much better listening experience. Yeah, I mean, it's sad that the assembly of the album does so much against it, because there's some good music there. There is. I
2: liked this a lot, because it does have a few really recognizable themes and motifs. And it uses them enough so that they stand out and are recognizable. So I was enjoying this disc a lot. It sort of took a downturn for me in the second half. There's one track which I refer to in my notes as 12 Minutes of Repetitive Atmospheric Dross. Uh, yeah, so it would be the track, uh, Nev, I believe. And um, it's after that track that the whole CD sort of takes a nosedive for me. It's not bad after that, but it's not nearly as good as the first half of the disc was.
1: Yeah, I think without knowing how the movie is shaped that that might be an artifact of composing the music so that Tarantino can needle drop it however he likes. So it's, you know, here is an extended passage of mostly atmospherics to put in as needed. Still, that doesn't say much about putting it on the soundtrack album, uh, to be fair. But otherwise, I think there is some seriously good music there. The, uh, the opening theme comes back uh, a couple more times before the end, I believe. As much as we've complimented it in contrast to Sicario, what it has in common with it is that it's almost an entire album of, like, ominous, brooding material. Toward the end, there is suddenly a noble trumpet solo that, again, not knowing the movie or anything about it, seems to come out of nowhere. ...and and really contrasts a lot of the music that you've heard so far.
2: There might be a theme in that track that's in some of the other tracks. Maybe if I listen to it more, I might pick that out. But I'm not sure that that's the case. But yeah, it does seem sort of disconnected from the rest of the music on
1: the CD. It's disconnected, sure, but I, th- but I think the contrast that, that it has, you know, serves it well. Okay, with two scores down and three to go, we will hit our break and hear ads for all of the fine, fine, so fine shows that you can hear on the Place to Be podcast network and our associated PWOPTBN network. We will be back in just a couple of minutes. See you then.
0: Consideration paid for by the following. What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Kelly. Make sure you check out every episode of The Kevin Kelly Show right here on the Place to Be Nation. placetobenation.com. The Kevin Kelly Show. Every episode is a winner. At least we hope. Place for Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to the Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes and PlaceForNation.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the place to be podcast with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current-day wrestling with Main Event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view Rewind series, led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. we got sports covered, too, with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott... Dr. G, Cowboy and Cowboy Senior, the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTVN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, and if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlayStation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott K keats blog of doom be sure to follow us on facebook twitter instagram and tumblr as well place be Nation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world this is parv and i'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling only place to be nation podcast network that's the pwo ptbn podcast network where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zelmer's One Two Punch of Exile on Bad Street and, with David Bickenspan, The smash hit Between the Sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave, Goodwill Wrestling and the Reaction Shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We've got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow, Stephen Graham and Tib Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show, Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Slees, and a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network.
1: ...talking about the nominees for Best Original Score at this year's Academy Awards. The next nominee is Bridge of Spies by Thomas Newman, which is pretty unique for being the first movie since The Color Purple that Steven Spielberg has made without John Williams. There was supposed to be a break in his recording schedule for the new Star Wars movie, but Williams had a slight health issue and had to uh, draw out of Bridge of Spies for the sake of finishing Star Wars. He is uh, signed up to do Spielberg's next movie, though, so that is continuing. But for Bridge of Spies, Spielberg turned to Thomas Newman, who has been nominated for 13 Oscars and has not won. Thirteen? I didn't realize he had that many. Yeah. Because he's only
2: done about, like, two movies whose scores popped out in my mind. That's
1: probably Shawshank Redemption and American Beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He was nominated for Shawshank Redemption. I don't remember if he got nominated for American Beauty, actually. What else did he get nominated for? There must be a whole bunch of stuff that made no impression on me. (laughs) He was nominated twice in 1995 for Shawshank and Little Women. He was nominated for Unstrung Heroes. He was nominated for American Beauty. He was nominated for Road to Perdition. He was nominated for Finding Nemo, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, uh, The Good German. He was nominated for Score and Song for Wally. Huh. He was nominated for Skyfall. His first James Bond movie, he also did Spectre, he did not get nominated for that one. He was just nominated for Saving Mr. Banks, and now he's nominated for Bridge of Spies. He's been one of those composers who serves as kind of a go-to to fill out a nominating slot, but who they haven't seen fit to actually give any awards to. He's won other awards, he's, he's won BAFTAs and, and Emmy and, and some other things, but the Oscars, uh, he has been stiffed thus far.
2: I haven't heard a lot of those, and a lot of those made no impression on me whatsoever. If he was going to have won one, I would think it would probably have been American Beauty. That was probably his best work that I've heard, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, that might have been my favorite score from that year as well. The winner that year was The Red Violin by John Corigliano, which, as we've seen several times, the Academy likes to award non-film composers who score films. That's how Trent Reznor wound up with an Oscar? That is, in part, how Trent Reznor wound up with an Oscar, yes. Uh, but anyway, we have Bridge of Spies. And from all the extracurricular conversation we've done so far, you might guess that this album was not the most engaging we've ever heard. What do you think?
2: Bridge of Spies was both less annoying than Sicario, but also less memorable. Sicario was like nothing but foreboding and droning and tension building. But Bridge of Spies was just nothing. We're going to keep comparing everything to Sicario, aren't we? Because nothing's going to be that bad. Bridge of Spies isn't that bad, but it's, it's not really good either. It's just nothing. Like, I felt like I was literally listening to nothing. It was one of my least favorite kinds of scores, which is a score with very little hint at any sort of theme... Very little reused themes or motifs, it's just sort of aimless and empty, and it's audio, wallpaper, and there's nothing memorable about it whatsoever. It's literally nothing. Like, remember the old David Letterman bit, is this anything? If you played the Bridge of Spies score, it would be, no, this is nothing.
1: That would be a neat episode of Letterman, yes, because this album is only about 40 minutes long, so they open the curtain and play the uh, score. (laughs) There's one track
2: at the end of the disc, Homecoming, which has a bit of a theme to it. And it's a theme that's heard once on the entire rest of the disc. And by once, I don't mean in one track. I mean once. (laughs) I didn't even notice it until hearing the disc a second time. Because it's not repeated. It is not a piece of music that's played twice on the entire CD until that track, Homecoming. But it is used in Homecoming, and it is played in one other place on the disc. So I guess you could call it a theme. But other than that, there's nothing
1: recognizable in this entire score. The first time I listened to this album, I did something I like to do pretty often when listening to new albums that I'm just kind of trying out. Where I'll listen to it while I'm reading something, or while I'm working, or while I'm doing something that doesn't require all of my mind. So I'm still, like, partially listening. And if something jumps out at me, then I'll know that it's worth another look if something grabs my attention. I listened to this once, in that sort of context, and got nothing from it. I listened to it the second time right after listening to Sicario to prepare for this podcast and found it a breath of fresh air after that. I thought there were sections that were pretty engaging, I think, in the last three tracks of the album, which, considering how long those three tracks are and how short the rest of them are is a substantial part of the album, I think it really picks up. Uh, it's not anything that's going to find its way into my regular listening, but it's perfectly fine. See, we disagree on that.
2: I it's, suppose. It's more inoffensive than Sicario, but it's also less memorable, because it's just nothing. Like, I made a note about the track Glinicky Bridge, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but I don't care. I like pronouncing it Glynicky. There's I made a note on the track Glinicky Bridge, where I described it as being just like the rest of the album, kind of limp, and just sort of there. There was something interesting toward the end, but it was limited to the last minute and 15 seconds of a nearly 11-minute track.
1: One thing that I had in mind while listening to this... ...because he's following so many of Spielberg's collaborations with John Williams... ...was how much Newman might try to work within that sound. And for the most part, he really doesn't. For the most part, he stays a little more in his wheelhouse. There's a little bit of the uh, Americana scoring that sounds a little bit like Williams, but that might be because Williams wrote so much of it that maybe, to an extent, that sound comes to be identified with him a little bit. But uh, there was one track... Private Citizen has a lot of piano writing that is really, really identifiable as Newman's work. It's somewhat similar to American Beauty, actually. Some of the piano solos in that score.
2: Well, I guess that's the first one we really disagree on, because I didn't like that at all. I didn't dislike it much, but I just didn't find anything there worth listening to. Other than, like I said, some of the track Homecoming is pretty good, but outside of that, it was just a whole lot of nothing.
1: Yeah, I found it, like I said, perfectly fine. In contrast to some music that I really didn't like. With that, I think we will move on to the fourth score nominated, which is Carol by Carter Burwell. Well, is a composer that you've had some, uh, distinct impressions of, right? Carter Burwell, I had a distinct impression of
2: based on two of his movies, but given some of the other stuff that he's also done, I'm not sure where that impression comes from. Carter Burwell did the scores to Being John Malkovich and The Spanish Prisoner, both in the late 90s, and in both of those films... I'm exaggerating a bit, but in both of those films, the basic impression of the score is that he wrote about a minute and a half of music ...and looped it repeatedly throughout the film. He wrote like a theme that takes about 40 or 50 seconds to play... ...and then he played it again, and then he played it again, and then he played it again... ...and that's how he scored the entire film. Which is fine. I don't mind that. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm just describing my experience of listening to those scores. At least it's got a theme that you recognize and it's used a lot... ...so that you pick up on it and recognize it. That immediately makes it better than Sicario and Bridge of Spies... I'm not saying any of that as a criticism. I'm just saying that's the basic impression of being John Malkovich and the Spanish Prisoner. Is that he's written between 40 seconds and 90 seconds of music and it just gets looped. And so I thought, oh, well, okay, that's what Carter Burwell scores sound like. Because, you know, two data points is enough to sketch a line. So I said, okay, that's what Carter Burwell scores sound like. Except Carter Burwell also scored Conspiracy Theory and A Knight's Tale. And neither of them are anything like that. Those are both just regular scores. They have some big themes and they're played normally and they're played around with. Those are just regular, normal scores. Conspiracy Theory in particular is a really good listen. Oh yeah, I I like both of them. They're good scores, but they're more in line with sort of what you expect from most composers as opposed to the pattern of being John Malkovich and The Spanish Prisoner. So my whole impression of Carter Burwell has sort of been thrown completely up in the air. However, the score to Carol is very much more in the style of being John Malkovich and the Spanish Prisoner. I'm
1: not sure I completely agree with you.
2: There is definitely a base theme that he wrote, and it's about a 40, 50, 60 second theme, and he repeats it throughout most of the tracks, throughout most of the film.
1: Well, there are are two themes in the score to represent the two women that the story is about. And both of those, I feel, get a good deal of variation. They recur, and you recognize them, and they're identifiable, but uh, the instrumentation develops over the course of the movie. The The second theme in particular, the one for uh, the character Therese, which I can talk about this one in a little more detail, because I've actually seen this movie. <laughs> Uh, but there, there's a theme for Carol and another theme for Therese, the two women the movie is about. And Therese's theme, in particular, is very halting and tentative. And it starts off in, I believe, the second track on the album, played by, like, a violin and a piano. And, and it's, it's very, very tentative. But over the course of the album, the instrumentation playing that theme changes. It takes on more strings at times. It varies, until there's one track, uh, The Times, which is, I think, the fullest instrumentation of that particular theme. Uh, and then it returns, uh, in a way, to its former state toward the end of the album. Carol's theme, though, introduced at the beginning of the first track, I found engaging in the same way that some of Philip Glass's music is engaging. It has that sort of feel right at the beginning. Uh, I think that influence is felt early on, but then Burwell makes it more his own as that track goes on. And then I didn't really get that Philip Glass feel for the rest of the album. This
2: is another disc where the score wasn't good enough for the album producers, and they inserted a lot of songs in and amongst the score tracks. Which I noted on my notes that there are a lot of songs on this score CD, kind of like Superman 3.
1: Well, having actually seen the movie this time, I can say that the way those songs are used in the movie supports it very well and makes a lot of sense. I wish that they hadn't been interspersed with the score tracks on the album. I think it's fine to have them on the album, just stick them all at the end or something. But interspersing them with the score like that, I don't like. And it is a decent listen, the way the album is. It's a very good listen, I think, with the songs removed. And again, the uh, version that went to Academy Voters probably doesn't have the songs on there well obviously because they're not they're not awarding any of the singers
2: yeah they're not part of what's nominated what's nominated is the score
1: there's one film score review site that i read pretty often it's called movie wave it's written by a man named uh, james southall and he calls this carter burwell's most accessible work which i'm not sure i completely agree with i think i might say that conspiracy theory might be
2: yeah i was going to say exactly that conspiracy theory
1: Burwell also did the first Twilight movie and the last two Twilight movies. Uh, Other composers did the middle ones. And some of his work in there, I think, is pretty accessible as well. Although my favorite bit from Burwell's Twilight work... Is the first track on the album for the last movie when he combines his theme with the themes written for the other two movies by uh, Howard Shore and Alexandre Desplat, both of whose Twilight scores are great romantic scores, far far better than you could ever imagine could be written for a Twilight film. <laughs> I'm
2: not defending
1: this. I'm not defending the films at all. I've I've seen the first two and uh, oh my goodness. But the scores for the second and third one are fabulous. Anywho, back to Carol. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't mean to disparage at all by mentioning other scores that I really like. I think this is one that is going to make its way into my regular listening. Yeah, this is
2: definitely my favorite of the four. I mean, Hateful Eight was good, but Carol is definitely my favorite of these four. It has I like the themes... I like how often they're used. I like that I can recognize them and pick them out and say, oh, there it is. This is all things that I like in
1: scores, and there's a lot of it in Carol. Yeah, definitely. This is, by the way, Carter Burwell's first Oscar nomination. Really? In a uh, rather long career, actually. He's been doing movies since the 80s. I'm surprised he didn't get nominated for
2: any of those other films that we mentioned earlier.
1: That will do it for four of the five scores nominated for the Oscar. The fifth one, of course, is The Force Awakens by John Williams, which we spent about an hour talking about in episode three of our podcast.
2: Yeah, we already covered that one, so we don't really need to go heavy into it.
1: Yeah, well, the only couple of things I want to mention about that is that this is John Williams's 50th Oscar nomination, including nominations early in his career for score adaptation and a few best song nominees over the years. Add them all together, this is number 50, which is pretty monumental. It's kind of amazing. You said earlier,
2: Morricone, this is his, like, sixth nomination, and Williams has 50.
1: Yeah, in an equally long... Maybe a little shorter career, actually. Yeah, I think morcone has been doing it longer
2: than Williams. At least he's been doing big-time movies longer than Williams.
1: Right. It, you mentioned,
2: Con, a, a couple of the other films, the uh, Oscar promo CDs that are sent out to voters. I've actually heard the Force Awakens promo CD leaked on the internet, and it has some stuff that's not on the commercially released score album. And it's really interesting to see how they put it together. Because the Oscar promo disc for The Force Awakens is basically all the music in The Force Awakens without any of the Star Wars themes.
1: Right. It has the end title and a couple other uses of the older Star Wars themes. But... As little as possible. As little as possible. It doesn't have the main title. It doesn't have main title. It doesn't have the big presentation of the Han and Leia love theme from the middle of the movie. It's very much focused on music
2: that was composed for The Force Awakens, which is natural because that's what's nominated is the music composed for The Force Awakens, not themes that he wrote in 1980.
1: There have been debates, and there has been a hue and cry, and there have been rule changes, there's been all sorts of crap going on with Academy rules regarding sequel scores, and scores that use themes and base themselves on material written for older movies. That was the reason why Howard Shore won three Oscars for the Lord of the Rings series. He won Best Score for Fellowship and Best Score and Best Song for Return of the King. He was not nominated for The Two Towers because the Oscars changed their rules that year and disregarded scores based on themes that were not written for the film that's being nominated. So that's something that's gone around and around. They've changed the rules a bunch of times... Nobody really knows what their criteria are going to be any given year. It's a kind of a clusterfuck. That's whatever the voters decide to vote on. Well, even before the voters get to vote, there are rules for eligibility for nomination. Uh, Carter Burwell attracted a little bit of controversy when um, his score for True Grit was ruled ineligible because he based his score on 19th century hymns. Yeah, I really like that score. That was another good one by him too. Absolutely. But because a lot of the melodies were from these old hymns, it was ruled ineligible for best score because he didn't write those songs.
2: This is really weird the the academy governors trying to figure out how to award
1: sampling. Right. Right, exactly. <laughs> I guess the Grammys eventually figure that out. So, of course, it makes sense that the four-year consideration album for The Force Awakens tilts things as much as they can possibly be tilted in favor of the new themes for the new characters and all of the music in The Force Awakens that is fresher. So, among these five scores, which one is your favorite? Probably Star Wars.
2: And I don't know if that's a fair judgment or if that's just because I like Star Wars, but that was my favorite score out of these five, is John Williams' Star Wars score. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like, if I'm going to go back and listen to a piece of
1: music from one of these five scores, 90% chance is going to be from Star Wars. Probably. Carol is something that I'll probably listen to a lot, but there are individual pieces from Star Wars that I'll probably listen to a great deal as well. And in terms of what's actually going to win, I don't really know, because that depends on the vicissitudes of Oscar voters. I would say probably Morricone. That makes a lot of sense.
2: Again, it depends on what the voters feel like voting for, but in that... That old standby Oscars analysis of will win, should win. I think probably Morricone has the best shot at will win. And should win is... For me, it's either The Force Awakens or Carol. And I'm not sure how much of that is an emotional judgment that I lean toward Force Awakens.
1: Yeah, there are reasons, considering, again, the vicissitudes of Oscar voters. There are reasons that you can point to to say that pretty much any of these could win. It's always possible for John Williams to win the Oscar. I don't believe he's actually won one since Schindler's List, but he's nominated every time he writes a score, basically. Pretty much, yeah. He is always a possibility. Thomas Newman now is getting to the point where they've nominated him so many times that every time they nominate him again, people say, well, he has to win this time. So he's sort of the Leonardo DiCaprio of the composers, except he's actually deserving of recognition. Uh, yeah, sure. Carol, you could say because there's been some discomfort at what people perceive as the snubbing of the movie. Because it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, it wasn't nominated for Best Director.
2: Thank you for reminding me, I was extremely disappointed that Star Wars didn't get nominated for Best Picture. I mean, they expanded the nominations to ten movies so that they could get more popular, commercially successful films onto the nomination
1: list, and then they don't nominate Star Wars. They got more popular movies nominated. They got Mad Max and The Martian, which are the two Best Picture nominees that I've actually seen.
2: If you if you only have five Best Picture nominees, and you nominate five like, art house, fine arts films, that's fine. But if you have ten nominees... How do you not find a spot for Star Wars out of ten nominees?
1: I don't know. That reminds me a little bit of the outcry when the Dark Knight didn't get nominated for Best Picture. Well, at least back
2: then they only had five nominees. If there were ten slots, then I would have agreed.
1: Yeah, but that's a movie they're never going to nominate. They're just not going to nominate a Star Wars movie for Best Picture. It ain't going to happen. I
2: think it's kind of ridiculous that you have ten films that have been nominated ahead of Star Wars when it is the most successful film ever. I mean, I see your argument, but... How do you have the most successful, most popular film ever, and somehow you've found ten movies from its own year that are more deserving of nomination? I'm not
1: saying it has to win, I'm not even saying you have to put it in your top five. It's gotta be in your top ten! There is an argument or a debate to be had between the idea that the Academy voters choose the artistically most excellent movie, which, of course, they don't in anyone's opinion, but that's the idea, right? Versus the idea that I think is quite reasonable, that something that is so popular and captures the imaginations of so many people has to have something substantial to it. There is something, artistically, that grabs people for a thing to be so, so popular, and that merits consideration, and that merits discussion. That's basically what this podcast is about. I mean, we're not talking (laughs) about way, way niche things. I mean, we're talking about pop culture artifacts here, but... We're doing... You realize this entire episode is about the best score nominees. Okay.
2: (laughs) And we also did an entire episode about the Star Trek trailer.
1: Star Trek is just such a thing that is popular and endures in the popular imagination, and so there must be something to it, and that is something that stands to be teased out. And that is something that a great deal of ink, both virtual and real, has been spilled teasing out for many years. And so I see the argument that Star Wars merits consideration for Best Picture. I don't entirely disagree. Partially because I'm not sure that I've seen 10 new release movies this year. So if I have to list my top 10, of course, it's there. But I'm just saying you have when Titanic
2: ran away and broke every record in the history of box office, it won Best Picture. When Avatar ran away and broke every record in the history of box office, it was nominated for Best Picture. Oh, good Lord. I guess it was. When a movie is this popular and this successful... I'm not saying it has to win Best Picture. I'm not saying it even has to be in your top five of the year. It should definitely at least be in your top ten. Why did you expand the list of Best Picture nominees from five to ten
1: if not to find a space for films like Star Wars? Again, I don't entirely disagree. It's just not something that I ever really considered, uh, considering the realities of how these things work.
2: Well, the realities of how these things work are a bunch of disinterested people getting ballots in the mail and they hand them out to their
1: kids or their maids or their neighbor's dog or whatever. Their kids and their friends and their domestic workers are the ones giving Star Wars a billion dollars. Yeah, but they're the ones voting. They're not the ones nominating. So to sum up, and to transition back off of the Best Picture nominees for a minute... Yeah, did you ever pick a winner for Best Score? Because
2: I I gave my winner, and I think we sort of got off on a tangent, and I
1: don't know that you ever picked your winner. No, I was saying that there's a case for almost everything that was nominated, except Sicario. Okay, thank you. Because I I was about to jump
2: on you for that one. I don't understand how Sicario got nominated. My, My best theory is that there were only five qualifying scores this year, and so they had to nominate it.
1: Yeah, I think there was something around, like, 200 or, or something like well, that. Well, there
2: must have been at least 175 of them that were better than Sicario. What the fuck?
1: Yeah, I think that might just be some campaign for the film in general. I don't know if it's nominated for anything else, but it seems not to be nominated for any of the big awards and so that might actually be a bit of a case for it, politically, because the Best Score award is often sort of a consolation. People say, often, that if something is a big prestige movie and it's not going to win the big ones, you know, picture, director, actor, actress, then they might give it Best Score.
2: Well, if they're gonna give Best Score as a consolation of film that aren't gonna win Best Picture or Best Director, maybe they should give it the Star Wars! Yeah, do you think J.J. should have been nominated? I I don't know. I find it hard to judge direction. I'm not enough of a film buff to judge direction.
1: Yeah, fair. So between the five of them, the one that I'm probably going to listen to selections of the most is Star Wars. The one I'm probably going to listen to the full album of, minus the songs, is Carol. If I were a voter, I would probably give it to Carol. Because Williams has a million Oscars. I mean, the fact that they nominate him every time he writes something is a case for him because you can never discount him. But you can also say that they nominate him every time, but they've given him a million awards, and so they feel like they've awarded him enough, maybe?
2: That's an argument. That's sort of a bullshit argument, because you really should be judging which of these scores is the best, not which of these composers already has enough awards.
1: Yes, well, there's plenty of ink that has been spilled and will be about the Oscar process. Yes. so if I were a voter I would probably give it to Carol it probably won't actually win who do you think will win I think probably Hateful Eight mm. I, I agree with you there and so I think that will do it for our Academy Award preview thank you very much for being with us If you would like to find any of my stuff on the internet, you can find the Wednesday Walk Around the Web every Wednesday morning at placetofenation.com. It's a link roundup of things I find interesting or amusing in some way. You can find the prior and, I dearly hope, future episodes of this podcast at placetofenation.com. We have done episodes about Star Wars and The X-Files we did recently. That's currently airing. Uh, We just recently started a special rewind series on all of the Star Trek movies, so look out for that over the course of this year. We might do other Star Trek podcasts beside that, because sometimes we just have conversations and say, we should be recording this. That is all that I have going on on the Place View Nation. You can find me if you want to find me, which I'm not sure why, but, you know, I'm not here to judge. I am on the Tumblr and on the Twitter at Glennybun. If you have any uh, fan mail for Scott or uh, questions, comments, suggestions for the show, email me, B. that is with two N's, at placetobenation.com. Find a great many podcasts and articles every day at placetobenation.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you come back. Thank you, and good night. Singing the love theme from Star Trek 1 again No oh,
2: sing the love theme From Sicario